an ascension into heaven. Um, what I'm going to say this morning, two things to do with shopping, really. The first one is that I realise that uh, uh, normally I time my sermons by how many pages. Five is normal. Today, six, so you've got 20% extra. Um, but the, the more important thing, perhaps, is in my newspaper, I turn past the fashion pages, as men do. But I can't help noticing at the moment that the in thing is retro. And so, always want to keep up with things, I thought, well, let's have a retro sermon this morning. Not that retro, about 17 days retro. Because we're looking back a couple of weeks to Ascension Day, Thursday the 13th of May this year, 40 days after the resurrection, and not a day that comes on the radar as far as um, Baptists are concerned, or non-conformists at all. It's always on a Thursday, not a Sunday, so... But William Barclay also pointed out the ascension is far and away the most difficult incident in the life of Jesus either to visualise or to understand. But it's important, has some lessons for us to learn so we can't just ignore it. The early church put the ascension in its creeds. Um, By the second half of the second century it was an established part of the church calendar and by the end of the first millennium it was common to find pictures of the ascension in church wall paintings. This one, you can just about see some feet there, and there are the disciples looking up. That's um, 15th century in a church at Seething in Norfolk. A number of artists do that. Albrecht Dürer did. Um, That's 1511. Then Salvador Dali in 1958 went for a rather more unusual angle, um, looking at it from the disciples' eyes. And there are also Chinese and African versions um, on the subject. But let's hear Luke's account of what happened that day. Jesus taken up into heaven. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, He gave them this commandment. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, Are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. 
They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. May God bless these words to our hearts today. Thank you, Beryl. Yes, the ascension. He ascended into heaven. Just a brief account, three verses cover the whole story, yet very, very important. According to the Dictionary of Jesus and the Gospels, the Ascension Departure narrative is formative for Luke's Christology, Pneumatology, Soteriology, Ecclesiology, Eschatology, and Missiology. In plain English, Luke, when he writes about the Lord Jesus Christ, when he writes about the Holy Spirit, when he writes about salvation, when he writes about the church, when he writes about the end times, when he writes about the church's mission, central to what he's writing is the fact that the Lord Jesus has ascended into heaven. It's formative, it's important. We're looking at the start of Acts, which some people call um, the Acts of the Apostles, some people call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit, and some of us call it Acts of Mission. Because Acts is the story of the growth of the global mission of the church. And I'd like to assure Claire uh, that I had decided on this passage before I knew that in the autumn we're going to be looking at Acts in terms of the global mission of the church. It didn't follow, it um, was there beforehand. The Ascension introduces the whole theme of mission. In addition to those specific words that Jesus said, you will be my witnesses, notice it's not you can be, it's not if you choose to be, you will be my witnesses. There's no option involved in Jesus' words. But Luke focuses our attention on the fact of Jesus' ascension, his entrance into heaven, and then the message from the men in white. Not the men in black, the men in white. Rebukes the disciples because they haven't understood and assures them of their Lord's return. We don't get told the details of how it happens. What we do get told is that the missionary activity of the early church rested not only on Jesus' words about witnessing, but also on his living presence in heaven and on the sure promise of his return. Luke says that he was taken up. It happened after he had told the disciples that they will be witnesses while they were watching. It's the significance of the ascension that's important to Luke, not its description. The significance is that a cloud hid him from their sight. That cloud is the Shekinah, the Hebrew word Shekinah, the visible manifestation of God's glory, God's presence with his people. In the wilderness, a cloud hovered over the tabernacle so that people knew God was there. When Jesus and three of his disciples were on what's called the Mount of Transfiguration, 
Jesus was in a cloud. The presence and the glory and the approval of God for what his son was doing. And so here Jesus, the risen Lord, as he becomes the ascended Lord, is enveloped in that Shekinah cloud. The visible manifestation, as I keep saying, of God's presence, of God's glory, of God's acceptance of Jesus and his work. But we're running ahead. The Sorry, I keep forgetting to click, don't I? Never mind. We're running ahead. The time from death to resurrection was important. We heard that Jesus showed them convincing proofs that he was alive. First of all, the disciples had to know that he had died. Okay, that took three days. Then Christ could have ascended straight to heaven, but they needed to be sure he was alive 40 days and convince them that he was alive. They received more teaching. They met him at the meal that we now celebrate as communion. But then the time came that Jesus had done all that he needed to do and he had to go. But he had to go, leaving a sign that all of his resurrection appearances in the body had ended. And that's where the resurrection comes in as important. He had to leave He had to be seen to leave. He had to leave no room for anyone thinking that he hadn't left. The disciples had to let go. But even after he'd left, the disciples could have remained dependent in a clingy manner. How is it going to be sorted out? Well, Luke says that the disciples were looking intently up into the sky as he was going but they were soon challenged by the message of those two men dressed in white. They said two things. First of all, the Jesus that they had known as a bodily presence now only had a heavenly existence. But secondly, they said that this same Jesus would come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. For years, people worried about that. And it said, all the earth will see him. In a very short while, it will be possible for everyone in the world to see the World Cup in South Africa. Technically, it is possible now for everybody in the world to see Jesus return. Although I don't think that's how it will be done. But when Jesus comes back, in the same way, means that he will come back in that cloud of divine glory, that Shekinah cloud, it will be spectacular. Nobody will be able to say, Jesus hasn't come back. We won't be able to have those people saying, ah, Jesus came back so-and-so time, and he told me, and you've got to believe me, Jesus coming back, everybody in the earth will know that he's back. And that's very important. Because... It's all part of what's called his exaltation. We sometimes used to sing a song, he is exalted. Well, the process of exaltation is making Jesus glorious, emphasising the inestimable worth of the Lord Jesus Christ. In a way, the ascension reverses his birth. His birth, Jesus came down from heaven to be born as a human. The ascension, he goes back to heaven, to his home. It's obvious that the exaltation isn't complete yet. Christ is not exalted in all the earth. 
The first step, though, was the resurrection. The second is the ascension, leaving earth in that Shekinah cloud. And it is important that Christ is heaven. I mentioned it in talking earlier. He's not constrained in heaven by earthly, by physical limits. If he was still on earth, he could have only be in one place at one time. Now, through the presence of his Holy Spirit, he can be everywhere. Omnipresent. He's also powerful to help. He is omnipotent. It's important that Jesus is in heaven. Oh, the third step in heaven, when he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. Now, how many people sit down to work these days? Yeah, it wasn't like that then, was it? When you sat down, it was a sign that your work was complete. You'd done everything that you had to do. So Jesus sat down. The work of salvation, the work of everything that has to do with making it possible for us to renew our relationship with God was done. There is no more to be done. So the first three steps, the fourth step, which is what the men talked about. There's the first three. The fourth one, the bodily return of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the same manner, in that cloud of glory that everyone will see. The ascension is important, but it's more important than just the fact that he went. There's a direct benefit to us. Christ came down from heaven. He was the divine person. He was God. He is God. Sorry, wrong tense there. He is God. He always has been God. But he took human flesh. He became a baby. He became fully human. But he also remained totally divine, although whilst he was on earth there were limits. And this fully human Christ has gone to heaven. He's ascended there, demonstrating, as we've thought about those two ladies who have died, returning to heaven so that we can know that we can go to heaven. He's gone to prepare a place for his followers, as he promised the disciples at Last Supper. The Christian hope, the Christian confidence, is that we also will be with him there. And because the human Christ is in heaven, there is a human there, fully human, he can speak to the Father on behalf of humanity. He is fully, sin, um, fully sympathetic with us here on earth. He's experienced everything human. He experienced birth, growth, temptation, bereavement, suffering, death. He can serve as our mediator in heaven. He understands the human situation so we can pray boldly to him as he hears our prayers. I've uh, been talking about heaven. We talk about Christ ascending to heaven. We're naturally drawn to consider heaven itself. Where is it? What is it like? If I spend much time on heaven, then I really ought to spend some time on the other place. Um, so I'll be brief, which means that I'll avoid the where of heaven and also I won't be going to hell. Uh, heaven isn't an easy topic. 
partly because just about everybody has their own ideas about it. The writer Adrian Plass seems to think that it'll be an eternal game of cricket. Some people might think that was a description of the other place, but that's his idea. The minister who married Marion myself, he taught that we'd be so overwhelmed by the glory and the presence of God that heaven would be so wonderful, he said, that we'd have no time, we'd have no desire to do anything at all except just worship God. Common idea is that we'll be reunited with those who we've known, who we've loved here on earth, although there is a statement by Jesus that there is no marriage in heaven but people do have that belief. Mark Dehan writing in the Bible series Our Daily Bread imagines a heaven that builds on the good that we have known here on earth but uh, leaves behind the evil so we'll have time with friends, time he thinks for leisure interests but that it's all human speculation. God has chosen not to let us know about heaven beyond a few enigmatic words from Jesus and the book of Revelation. It's a city of great beauty, but to me, the most important thing that the Bible says about heaven is that there will be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain because the former things have passed away. The ascension points us to heaven. The ascension points us to that comfort of where we will be. If we are bereaved in heaven, there will be no more death. If we're sorrowful for any reason, in heaven there will be no sorrow. If we're upset for any reason in heaven, there will be no crying. The ascension brings us comfort of what shall be the future. If we're in pain, no. The former things in heaven have passed away. But heaven is important, so is the coming again. When we look to Revelation for information about heaven, when we look to the closing chapters then we're taken to the fourth step. If you remember the fourth step in the exaltation, his second coming, his coming again. The men in white at the ascension said about it. It's an essential part of our ascension thinking. It's a big topic, but we need to see it as a consequence of all that's happened since sin came into the perfect world that God created. What went wrong then will be put right he said when his clicker doesn't work. What went wrong in the Garden of Eden will be put right. A new heaven and a new earth. God's people dwelling in beautiful surroundings, enjoying his presence forever. But so what? It could be just a lovely academic exercise. The ascension, yes. Part of history... Yes. What about 2010? What difference should the ascension make to us on earth? What difference should the fact that Christ went to heaven make to us on earth in 2010? Let's look back 
to the exaltation of Christ. That bigger topic. He deserves to be given honour and glory by all the people on earth for what he has done. People everywhere should be glorifying him. So that how are they able to do that? How will people be able to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ? First of all, they will learn about it by Christian lives that glorify God. They'll learn about it by the life of the church, as the church brings glory to God by what it does in all sorts of different ways. People will learn about the glory of God by individuals and by the church teaching, preaching about salvation about the good news that Jesus died for our sins, that we might not die ourselves, but be given the gift of eternal life. The church, the church universal, not just this body of people, but the church universal is Christ's body on earth. Christ is exalted, and through the church, Christ is exalted, not as fully as the eventual plan, but we need to live. We need to live as individuals and as the church in God-honouring ways. The second coming, Jesus talks about it in the parable of the wise and the foolish version, also uh, challenges us to live in God-honouring ways. We don't know when he's going to come. Jesus said it'll come like a thief in the night. And heaven, the kingdom of God. Jesus said he had come to bring heaven to earth. And he has, to a certain extent. There's one sense in which, as Christians, we are already in heaven. But we're not able to enjoy the full range of all that heaven offers because we live in a sin-bound earthly existence. We're not there yet. But we need to live our lives as Christians as if we are in heaven. We need to live with such joy as we do have now. But circumstances for some of us aren't uh, conducive to all having huge grins over our faces the whole time. We face problems, different kinds, health, employment, families and so on. As we think about Christ's ascension, we can also know that the one who died for us to give us eternal life now lives for us in heaven. He cares about us. He cares about our difficulties. He sympathises. He listens to our prayers. I'm going to say that more and more because I want everybody to hear it. Christ sympathises, he listens to our prayers. Christ even listens to our silences when we feel that we're so down that we can't pray. Christ is listening to your silence and is there in the presence of his Holy Spirit with you. In our human weaknesses, he's fully human to understand, he's fully divine to strengthen us wherever whatever may be happening to us. But it's still, so what? What practical difference should the ascension, what practical difference should the inevitable consequence of the essential, Christ's second coming, make? 
John Grayson was until recently the Scripture Union's Director of Authority, Director of Theology. Until re- uh, recently, he was the expert. He was a theologian. He wrote an article about this, and he gave it the title, Servants of the King. The Ascension prepared the disciples, spurred them on to continue Christ's work here on church, to continue that as spirit-filled believers. It ought to have the same effect on us. We're servants of the King and we can't do his bidding. We can't stick our fingers in our ears and say, na, 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 can't hear you, God. God is speaking to us. That's not, we were talking at House Group on Wednesday about how some years ago ministers used to lay guilt trips on the congregation. That's not what I'm trying to do. But we do need to listen to what God is saying. See, the problem with the disciples then the potential problem for me, for all of us, in 2010, is narrowness of vision. The disciples could only think in nationalistic terms, what's going to happen to Israel? Are you going to restore Israel? That's how far they got. They ignored the clear teaching of Jesus, the clear teaching of the Old Testament, that God's plan is, God's plan always has been, to restore all people to a relationship with himself. So the, pas- the passage asks us if our vision is too restricted. Are we focused on our own limited vision instead of seeing God's purposes? The disciples were looking inwards, not outwards. Again, bringing me, bringing all of us, a warning. Are we behaving, well, thinking first, but even behaving as though church exists for us rather than the outside world? Doing what satisfies me rather than making God's message understandable and attractive to those outside there. Mary reminded me as we were talking this morning about a church we once went to as visitors And as you walked out the door, there was a great sign over the top of the door, which read, the mission field starts here. The mission field starts as we walk out the door of the church this morning. And Jesus said that there are no boundaries to his work. His mission, our mission, isn't just to our Jerusalem. It's important. Jerusalem, where we live, but it's not even to the equivalent of our Judea and Samaria, sort of the surrounding area. It's to the ends of the earth. But Jesus said, you're not going to do it on your own. We don't have to, we can't do it in our own experience. The Spirit will empower us to do it. It's not a one-off experience, it's a permanent atmosphere for us to live in a permanent power to our elbows. You and I can't, all of us, go to the ends of the earth, although some have, some are. But we can be part of that going as we enable other people to go. And a fortnight today, we'll be able to learn about Burlington Baptist Church going 
to Sofia in Bulgaria through the person of our BMS World Mission Link missionary, Mark O'Sullivan. He's going to be here in the morning. Um, he'll take part in our morning service briefly, but then in the evening he's going to be doing much more at Christ Church. He'll concentrate on the work to combat injustice that he and Penny are doing in Sofia. Do plan to join him in those services on the 12th of June. Mark and Penny are in part Burlington Baptist Church in Sofia, Bulgaria. On the other hand, oops, Hello, my name is Paul and I work in Afghanistan. Many years ago, God uh, spoke to Ruth and myself and said that he would use us overseas at some point, but we never really knew when. And then just four years ago, I was at a, a BMS conference when everybody on the stage just spoke to me and nobody else in the whole room. Uh, so I felt that it was time to uh, really push that door. I spoke to BMS and they said that there was a position in Afghanistan. That was a bit of a surprise, uh, not a place that was particularly on my radar. But God has called us to work there to enable the work of our partner organization in Afghanistan. And really, he's showing us that what we do in our normal jobs can make a big difference when they're taken into uh, a third world situation. How then should we act in the light of Christ's ascension and future second coming? Again, there's a temptation that I must have fallen into, along with others, to leave it to them, to leave it to the others, to make mission a peripheral passion, and in music, PP means that it's very quiet, so PP, peripheral passion, very quiet, for them rather than the lifeblood of myself and the church. How should we act in the light of Christ's ascension and future second coming? How are we going to take our part in exalting Christ here on earth? Go. That could be as short as a week, could be a bit longer, and you might, if you're really uh, unlucky, get stranded in... Um, Eastern Africa uh, because of the ash cloud and if you want to know about that talk to Alan but go yes pray we need to be informed give there are so many ways in which we can act in response to the ascension to his future second coming to take our part in exalting Christ here on earth